Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. And we're glad you're with us this week. I'm Jared Serbu. Earlier this year, the U.S. Navy crossed a pretty impressive personnel milestone. Over 120 consecutive months, it consistently met its goals for recruiting new sailors. Considering that 10-year string of successes, it might seem counterintuitive that the service would embark on a wholesale transformation of its personnel system, but that's exactly what our guest this week says is necessary and what's happening. Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel, is with us for the full hour on this week's show. He says there are at least a couple of factors driving that transformation, which falls under the broad heading of an initiative called Sailor 2025. For one thing, when you dig into the numbers a bit, it turns out that there are some niche areas in which recruiting is not going so well. In skill sets that face a lot of competition from the private sector, for example, there are sometimes just one or two qualified and willing candidates for a given position. Burke says another factor is cost. In the modern Navy, he argues, the expense of recruiting and separating 40,000 military personnel each and every year just doesn't make sense. So the Navy wants to find ways to recruit fewer sailors but retain them for longer. We'll dig into the more than 40 initiatives that make up Sailor 2025 during the course of the hour, including what I thought were some particularly eyebrow-raising ones, like revamping the Navy's performance rating system, perhaps even tying an individual sailor's pay to their performance and not just their seniority and their skills. Burke says most of the changes boil down to one goal, making the Navy an attractive employer in an increasingly competitive recruiting environment. You know, we've been modernizing everything to do with our Navy in terms of, you know, our our designs of our ships, our our airplanes, our weapon systems, but we really haven't fundamentally changed the approach to our personnel policy, our programs and systems since the 70s, and and some aspects of it really go back to post World War II in a time when we when we really still had the draft, and. You know, as a chief of naval personnel, I'm responsible for making sure that our sailors, uh, when we recruit them and train them and get them out to the fleet, that they're ready for the everything that we're going to throw at them, uh, the jobs and tasks that they're going to have to do in the environment that they're going to have to operate. So that includes everything from, you know, finding and recruiting uh, that talent in, a, in what is today a, a very, very competitive talent market. And then uh, getting them through training pipelines, they're going to turn those uh, newly transformed, you know, just recently civilians and now young sailors into highly skilled maritime warriors. So when I think about that's what we've got to do, and I think about the challenges, the first piece there is that that war for talent piece. And we've been uh, uh, watching this closely, uh, you know, as our economy in the United States has, has been recovering uh, and, and predicting that we were going to have some, some challenges on the horizon. And today, I'll tell you that those are, those are starting to, uh, you know, come to fruition. But even larger, the, the recruiting pool in the United States, folks that have the academic skills and the physical qualifications, and then if you narrow it down even further to those that have, you know, the willingness to serve. It's getting smaller and smaller. Our current estimates are that when you put all those factors in, it's less than 1% of the U.S. population. It's sort of at, a, at an all-time uh, historical low. And then the other factor is that today's commercial
commercial, industrial, and you know, Fortune 500 companies, everyone is looking for the same sort of talent. They want technically skilled uh, folks that are able to do the same sort of things that, that we want our sailors to do in the military. So we're all sort of competing for the same dwindling talent pool that's out there. Um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, when you, when you talk about a recruiting pool that's only 1% of the U.S. population, it is sort of amazing that you have been able to meet your recruiting goals so successfully for such a long time. What what are some of the indicators that you see out there that, that tell you that, that things are starting to fray? Yeah, the, uh, the, the predominant uh, factors are um, we have a, a number of different uh, uh, mechanisms by which we distribute goals uh, across the country. Some of them are geographic goals and then by, you know, types of individuals with different skill sets. And we're seeing those those subsets of goals, whether it's skills or geographic locations, districts, if you will, um, we're starting to meet individual or starting to fail to meet individual goals in those individual categories at a higher and higher rate. We're meeting the overall and the aggregate, but we're, we're uh, more frequently missing those individual goals. And, and that, that rate of missing those individual goals has been going up for uh, the last year now. Uh, and, and I look at that with concern. And then the other element here is for our really you know, high aptitude jobs like uh, you know, advanced electronics, uh, nuclear uh, technicians, linguists, things like that that require very high academic aptitude. We used to be able to look at two or three candidates for every one that we needed. In some cases, we're down to one candidate uh, that, that we're able to bring in the door for every one we need. Uh, you know, fortunately, the ones we're bringing in still, you know, qualify and, uh, and we're able to get them in. But if that goes down much lower, we won't meet the goal in the future. Yeah, and I guess where I was leading with that last question is in those areas where you do, where you are starting to see some challenges, like for instance, where you have one candidate for every open position. Can you tie the difficulties in those specific specialty areas to deficiencies in the personnel system itself? Is that specifically what's informing the changes that you're trying to make under Sailor 2025? I think it's the overall the propensity to serve uh, issue. You know, the willingness for people coming in the military is is because of the perception of what the you know a career in the military in our case a career in the navy uh would look like there's a perception of 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 what it's like and uh what we are doing to transform ourselves is to make our personnel system uh a lot more modern and and really the essence of it is uh making it about flexibility over a of a of a career about choices and about transparency. We're not historically known for our transparency of processes, but um, you know, becoming much more so. It's uh, you know, career assignment processes that resemble LinkedIn and and things of that nature, where there's much more of a a negotiation uh, type of ability. And and when folks can see that, it's a lot more similar to what they might have opportunities to get in the civilian world, plus you get the training, plus you get the opportunity to serve because the, you know, the overwhelming reason people come to the service is they do have a desire to serve. They, they have a desire to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. The folks these days really are 
uh, about uh, that service, that 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 mission set, if you will, and, and they can see that the that the processes are, you know, offering that flexibility, offering that transparency. They they do have a little bit of uh, control of their destiny going forward. Then we, you know, can. Uh, can convince them to give it a try and and uh, and see how it works. So that's one element of it. And the other element, though, is it's not really sustainable to keep doing it the way we've been doing it. If I talked to one of my counterparts in a Fortune 500 company and told them that I'm recruiting 40,000 sailors every year, but I'm also sending 40,000 folks home every year, and then I'm moving 90,000 sailors and their families around every year, they'd look at me like I was insane. Why do you do that? And a lot of that really is driven by, you know, those post-World War II personnel models where we had limitless supplies of people coming in the front door that could be very quickly trained up and moved out to the fleet. And those fundamental uh, assumptions just aren't true anymore. It's very expensive to bring them in the front door. And then it's also uh, expensive and takes a lot of time to train them up for the, you know, the skills we need for a long time. So we need to change the system for all those different reasons. So those are the driving reasons uh, behind Sailor 2025. Let me stick with that last point um, just a little bit. I've heard you talk about this in the past, kind of narrowing that pyramid so that you bring in fewer people but keep them for longer. Have you clearly thought through what the end state looks like if you are able to do that? And and what would it take in order for you to, again, recruit fewer people but hold on to them for longer? Uh, There's a a number of factors um, that that we're uh, looking at. And it's sort of also a difference uh, in terms of enlisted uh, personnel policy and officer personnel policy because of the policy versus law governing each of those. We have a tremendous amount of flexibility on the enlisted policy side because there is actually very little law governing it. So we're making those changes right away. Again, the policies really date back to the late 1940s when life expectancy was a lot shorter, um, you know, life on board ships was a lot harsher, and people didn't think of careers in the military going much longer than 20 years. Uh, 30 years really was on the outside, but today it would be reasonable to go uh, longer. 40 years would not would not be unthinkable. Uh, so we're we're adjusting, uh, you know, a lot of the limits on the uh, enlisted career lengths. Today we're making those adjustments uh, on the in the eaches where it makes sense, where we have needs. Uh, we're also doing it in places where we uh, need to incentivize personnel to. For example, go back to sea duty where we have shortages at sea duty. We'll make exceptions to the rules and allow folks to stay in to go do the types of work we need them to do. Um, on the officer side, much of that's governed by law. Congress did pass uh, a law last year that allowed the services the discretion to, on a case-by-case basis for individual communities of officers, allow officers to serve up to 40 years of commissioned service. And we're looking at very highly technical trained communities of officers that, you know, in many cases we take unrestricted line officers like surface warfare officers, aviators, pilots, submarine officers, and then late in their careers around the commanding officer time frame, so, you know, 20, 22 years of commissioned service, 
we transition into things like acquisition professionals. They're, they now become the folks that are experts in you know, long-range acquisition of combat systems, of ships, uh, you know, hulls and reactor vessels or whatever it might be. Uh, and, and then because right now the law says that if they don't make flag officer, they have to retire 30 years we only have them for a short period of time, but that would be an example of where we where we may take advantage of that that new law that allows us to take folks out to 40 years, uh, doctors, uh, dentists, lawyers, other things like that, where uh, you know we would start that and then kind of expand out from there and and see where where we can uh, make additional gains, but all in in an effort to do exactly as you described it, uh, narrow that base of the pyramid. Uh, starting in those sort of uh, easy win categories as we rethink sort of the more traditional career paths like the aviators, the surface warfare officers, uh, things of that nature. You you mentioned a few minutes ago that it, it may not be smart to move people as frequently as you do right now. You know, are you say, taking a serious look at doing fewer permanent change of station moves in the near future? And And if so, is that something that would be sort of Navy directed or that the individual sailor would have some say in in terms of whether that person wants geographic diversity versus staying in one place for a while? I think it's a, it, it would come from both directions. Uh, we always look at minimizing the, the number of moves just from a, a cost reduction basis, but a number of things drive that. And, you know, part of it is, you know, as we've reduced the numbers of uh, bases that we have worldwide and also at the same time dispersed our forces um, with a lot of, you know, differing reasons, but some of them operational, some of them, you know, consolidation of bases to, you know, reduce operating costs across the world, a whole host of reasons. Um, You do have to ensure upward mobility as a, you know, a sailor's career progresses, so they have to move to those areas of increasing responsibility. Sometimes that means moving between ship classes, which causes you to move from port to port. When we can avoid doing that, and that sort of depends on what the, the sailor's job is, what their occupational specialty or rating is, we we do avoid doing that. And over the last couple of years, just in terms of, you know, uh, budgetary pressures, we've uh, really looked to maximize the numbers of opportunities to keep sailors in, in the places that they were, minimize, and even when they go between sea duty and shore duty whenever possible, keep them in the same places to the maximum extent possible. So we're kind of at our, given the types of ships we have and the locations that they're home ported right now, we're kind of at our theoretical, you know, limits in terms of uh, what we can do. So the art is in the mix of, of which sailors go where and when, and that's always an ongoing negotiation. What we want to do, though, is offer that as part of the overall uh, discussion for sailors. Um, you know, one of the end state goals of Sailor 2025 is to look at uh, an idea uh, that we call tailored compensation. And uh, this would require some more uh, legislative authority. We would work this in phases, but, uh, you know, compensation that's tied to not only performance level uh, or not only a skill set, which is which we can pay to today, but performance level as well. And then maybe we tie it in 
to uh, willingness to move or desire to stay in one location, and even educational packages uh, downstream. So it all becomes, you know, sort of a exactly the way you would do it in a in a with an employer at a Fortune 500 company, I'm willing to sign a contract for the next, you know, four, five, six, ten years. But I would like to stay here to get my son through high school. Uh, but after that, I'm willing to go where you need me to go. But someplace down downstream, I want to, you know, get my master's degree or whatever your next educational opportunity is and have that negotiation for that length of time and put those mechanisms in place. Today, the pay is all very structured and it's mandated you know, um, by Congress, we would like to have some additional flexibility, not advocating for making that all go away, but just some flexibility within each of those tables to, to have some maneuvering room to have, have a little bit of a, a negotiation such that, you know, if a sailor really wanted to stay in place, maybe a component of that pay would be a little bit lower as compared to a sailor who was willing to move to an unattractive location. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and our guest this week is Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel. We're talking about what he says is a transformation of the Navy's personnel system under the banner of Sailor 2025. And before the break, Admiral, you were telling us that one of the things you're looking at is to pay different sailors of the same pay grade differently uh, in ways that you can't do today based on things like their willingness to move to a new duty station or their individual performance. And tying pay to performance in, in any way is, is an intriguing concept and I think a pretty foreign one to, to the U.S. military at the moment, which ties into another thing that, that I know you're working on right now under Sailor 2025, which is revamping the entire performance measurement system, um, which I would assume that that, that that would be geared toward getting better fidelity on an individual's performance so that you could do things like tailored pay and figure out exactly when you want to promote somebody. But in any, in any case, describe to us a little bit about where you're headed with the performance evaluation system at the moment. Absolutely. And uh, and you have that exactly right. Uh, you know, today, uh, we just don't have enough fidelity, uh, enough good objective data on sailors' performance that, that we really could pay based on performance. But uh, our, current, uh, our current systems are laden with some uh, problems. We've, you know, we've had a, a number of different fitness reports for officers, we call it, and evaluations for enlisted folks. You know, probably over 50 different systems over our 241-year history. Uh, but what we're looking for with our changes is something that first and foremost gives our, our sailors meaningful, frequent, and useful feedback. Uh, so some actual useful counseling that they can do something with before the actual formal performance report gets you know, put in the record. Um, second, when for both that counseling and then the formal report, we want to get to some objective measures of the, of the sailor's performance with enough fidelity that we could do things like, you know, put put merit pay against it. And then third, we want to get rid of some of the artificialities in our current system, one of which is we have a forced distribution system 
uh, in our current reporting systems that was designed to prevent grade inflation and today has uh, unintentionally turned into a, a system that drives the reporting uh, seniors to rate individuals by their seniority rather than talent. And uh, we're looking to, to drive that behavior out of our reporting seniors so that we really can recognize and report on and reward talent through promotions and then ultimately through pay. Uh, and we haven't had a major update to our fitness reports or evaluations uh, since 1996. We've been living with it. Uh, we're comfortable with it uh, because folks have learned how to, you know, work with it. It's it's sort of the evil we know in terms of uh, what it's doing for it. So we're using a system now. We're piloting a system that does all those things. It's objectives-based. It removes this peer comparison uh, force distribution so uh, frees up the reporting senior from sort of this entitlement of time and grade or this, uh, you know, people waiting their turn to move up to the highest ratings. It also drives the reporting seniors to make meaningful evaluations of the individual traits. You know, we rate on individual components like uh character and leadership, which are very, very important subcomponents of an overall evaluation. Today, we're overly obsessed with the bottom line number, and those individual component grades have become less meaningful. In this new system, you can't reverse engineer those component grades. They have to actually mean something in and of themselves so that, you know, as we're selecting commanding officers or command master chiefs, we can have a meaningful discussion about an individual's evaluations of character as well as, you know, the results that they've gotten before we select them as a commanding officer because that's an important conversation that should be had before we put individuals in that special position of trust. Um, so those are the, those are the uh, sorts of things that we're doing. There's a lot been a lot of work done in behavioral science. A lot of Fortune 500 companies have adopted a mechanisms uh, along these lines, and we're taking advantage of, of uh, that learning. And um, paired with uh, technology and smartphones, you can do this relatively quickly and use the same tool for both the formal reporting and the counseling and get a lot more uh, counseling from not only the supervisors but peers and subordinates, which uh, our sailors have told us that they want. And then at the same time, it kills a lot of the administrative burden because our reports today are very manual and time intensive, taking uh, two hours on average. These these ones that we're piloting right now can be done on a smartphone in about six minutes. Wow! And uh, you get a lot more fidelity out of them. So we're very excited about the the possibilities here. We're early in the testing, and this summer we'll be uh, we'll we'll be piloting a lot more uh, with uh, some test groups. We'll be come going out and talking to the fleets about the details of the individual traits and then how the system works to come up with these grades. Um, we sort of see this this uh, grading mechanism as being different for different seniority levels. And uh, we never really broke it down that way before, but because of these, the mechanism at play here, uh, we think we need to break it up a little bit. So we want the fleet's involvement to, to make sure we get this right. And then we want to generate, uh, you know, thousands of, 
of test cases that will do the will do the reports the old way and the new way uh, over the course of the summer, and then then we'll go run some mock promotion boards uh, both ways and compare the results before we switch over. But our our goal is to sort of refine this uh, by the end of the year and and have some version of this new system in place by next year. Objectivity seems to me really, really key here, but but also really hard because no matter what, right? You, you're you're gonna you're gonna be subject to the subjective, unconscious biases and experiences of of whoever the rating official is and what that person values um, to some degree. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the objective measures that you're trying to put in place that that will kind of level the playing field and make these ratings more consistent and based on actual measurable performance? Yeah, so the, uh, the the behavioral science behind this is, is aimed at the reporting senior. And, uh, you know, in the simplest terms, if you take a particular trait that you want to evaluate, uh, and the mechanism we're employing is, and this is a oversimplification, but in general, if you're evaluating, um, you know, character, you would take a bunch of statements that illustrate positive character. So, something like uh, always does the right thing when people aren't looking and then you would make 20 more statements like that and then you would mix them up with a batch of 20 very positive statements about leadership 20 very positive statements about tactical competence technical competence all the other things you want to grade jumble them all together and now they waterfall down a, a computer display and the raider gets one at a time, they they waterfall down, and you got to make a gut call in about six seconds and put them into a bin, and all the bins are good, varying degrees of good. So there's no hard decisions here, but it goes from good to really good. And it turns out that the behavioral science says that uh, you get a pretty good distribution. And our, and our pilots so far have shown that Compared to our old systems where we got a distribution of grades, our old system was a 0 to 5.0 scale. We would get a distribution of grades from 4.85 to 5.0. Mm-hmm. We got a very nice bell curve with the same ranking order using this mechanism. So the the, the art, though, is in getting all those value statements for each of the traits you want to grade right and how you vary them for seniority. I think the, the value statements of you know, good character for a very, very junior sailor are probably different than they are for a very, very senior captain. And uh, that's what we really got to work on and spend the time on. But by forcing that gut reaction from the reporting senior, you can't go back and reverse engineer it to force one grade to be higher to make an overall outcome work out. You can't do it on this new system. And that's what we have been doing in the past. Vice Admiral Robert Burke is the Chief of Naval Personnel. Another short break, and when we come back, we'll break apart some of the various initiatives that make up Sailor 2025 and get a progress report on where the Navy is on implementing those and where it's still looking for help from Congress. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Sergey. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. Vice Admiral Robert Burke is with us for the full hour on this week's show. He's the Chief of Naval Personnel, and we're talking about a broad series of personnel reforms the Navy calls Sailor 2025. 
Admiral, we should probably step back a little bit and talk about where we are in terms of all the separate initiatives under Sailor 2025, because I know there's more than 40 of them. Um, the Navy's been on this journey of reexamining the personnel management system for a couple years now. Your predecessor, Admiral Moran, talked about uh, many of these same issues with us when he was still chief of naval personnel. Talk to us a bit about what's been accomplished so far, what, which, which of these elements of Sailor 2025 you can point to and say we've made some progress there. Sure. Um, uh, again, uh, it's a living, breathing set of today. It's about 45 different initiatives, and it's built on uh, a framework of three pillars. The the first is, you know, completely modernizing our personnel system. The the second pillar is uh, developing a career learning continuum for our enlisted force, and then the third pillar is all about uh, career readiness. So uh, I'll talk about the first pillar, which is the modernization of our personnel system. And, and that's all about the, the flexible policies, the additional career choices, and efforts really to uh, empower our commanding officers and our command triads, the, the CEOs, the executive officers, the, co- the command master chiefs, to give them the tools in their hands to uh, retain and recognize the best and brightest sailors. So, uh, you know, some of our uh, larger ones that are, are fairly mature now, uh, one of our shining examples is the Meritorious Advancement Program, and that's uh, in its third year now, and it takes a major portion of the enlisted advancement opportunity from E4 to E6 and puts it directly in the hands of the commanding officers and command master chiefs. So they directly pick who gets advanced. Uh, our first year, uh, it was uh, it was about 2,000 uh, of the advancements. Uh, it, it went up uh, last year, and we expanded it from just sea duty to sea and shore duty. And this year, we're a little over 4,000 um, advancement quotas in the, directly in the hands of the COs, and expanded out to essentially every command in the Navy now has you know, a handful of quotas that they can give to E4s to E6s. The other thing we did this year is we completely removed the time uh, in grade requirements uh, for the E4s and E5s, which used to be, you know, it used to sort of tie us to the old advancement exam cycle as well. But the idea here is, you know, the commanding officers, command master chiefs can see if an individual is mature enough to, uh, in addition to be, uh, you know, performing well enough to to merit uh, being promoted, and, and and we've been grading the the, the commands, and and they've been doing the right thing. They've been looking for folks that, you know, just haven't been been able to break out of the pack because of these issues with evaluations and things like that, and pulling them forward and and promoting them. So that's working really well. We're getting a lot of uh, very positive uh, feedback on that one. The sailors love it. The commands like it because it's it's putting the power where it belongs in the hands of the folks that can directly see who the talent is. It's not, you know, being done by an institutional process. Uh, another example uh, I would cite is, uh, you know, some uh, uh, expansion that we've done with our graduate education opportunities. We've always done a good job with sort of our own Navy institutions for graduate education. And we have also done uh, good stuff in terms of tuition assistance, which allows folks to do stuff on their own time. But where we were always lacking was in residence, full-time uh, educational opportunities. So 
we uh, last year we established what we call the Fleet Scholar Education Program, and it's it's not large numbers. It started with 15 a year. This year it's 30 uh, scholarships, and it's very competitive. We make uh, officers and senior enlisted folks compete for it, and each community uh, sets up their own rules for how they compete and select for it. But these folks, uh, you know, once they compete, they get to select their schools, and it's uh, you know it's high-powered schools. It's Yale, Dartmouth, Harvard. Uh, you know, very powerful schools, and uh, they go for up to two years. They uh, they stay on the payroll. They go get an education that that does something that gets them uh, uh, additional qualifications that that work towards things in the Navy, the subspecialty code for officers, additional uh, you know qualifications for enlisted folks. But you know, uh, it also helps them uh, with their with their goals, their personal goals as well. Another one is uh, tours with uh, industry. We really are looking at, at programs to, um, one, let our uh, our folks go see uh, if the grass is greener on the other side, but more importantly, go see what industry is doing and bring those, those best practices back to us, whether it's personnel, whether it's manufacturing, uh, whatever it might be. So similar to the civilian institution grad ed programs, we compete out these tours with the industry and let folks go for 18 to 24 months and work with uh, a number of industrial uh, partners. Uh, we're up to uh, uh, about 30 different uh, partners, and it's you know it's folks like uh, Amazon, FedEx, Microsoft, uh, you know. Our officers, our senior enlisted folks, uh, E6s, you know, bring really good uh, work ethic to these companies, uh, technical training, and I think do well for the companies. And then they're going out and learning state-of-the-art Fortune 500 techniques and bringing them back to the Navy. And uh, it's a win-win situation. And, And our folks love it because they're getting out and doing something a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, and and yet they're coming back and uh, and uh, and getting to bring that those techniques back to the Navy and and change the Navy for the the better. Um, so those are those are you know pieces in the personnel pillar. Uh, we talked a, a lot about several of the other ones there. Uh, those are some of the more uh, mature ones. The uh, the second uh, pillar there though, uh, ready relevant learning. Uh, we've made uh, some significant progress. Uh, really three components of that one. And the the first component is moving the training to the right uh, time in the career path, so the right training at the right time. And uh, we've got most of the training divided up into the right blocks. And by the end of next year, all of our enlisted training will be broken up. We used to do all of it at the front end of a sailor's career. And, you know, in many cases, by by the time a sailor would become a chief, uh, the training they had gotten, you know, fresh out of boot camp would be, uh, you know, no longer relevant because the combat systems or aircraft would be modernized and they'd have to learn all over again. So, you know, we're going to bring them back over, uh, you know, before each sea tour and, and refresh them and, and, and give them some updates. Um the, the next part of that will start um, year after next, and that's to bring – we've started this in some areas already, but in large numbers it will start the year after next, and that's to bring modern training delivery methods and really take advantage of 
you know, advances in the science of learning. And it's, it's about virtual reality and, uh, 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 you know, uh, virtual world learning environments with uh, digital tutors where you can put sailors in these worlds where everything's hands-on and everybody knows that you'll learn quicker and you retain the knowledge better by just doing it repeatedly. And uh, these things have become very cost-effective such that we can put them out in all of our fleet concentration areas so that by the time we get these distributed, we won't have to, you know, transport sailors back to training areas. So we'll be able to do it there at the waterfront. They'll be able to come back and do refresher training even while they're on uh, operational or seagoing tours and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, we've got a lot of that in place already. We've got a couple of the trainers that are in place now where they're, you know, training in those virtual worlds to the point where they're qualified on their watch station, they're qualified to maintain their gear 100% when they leave the trainer because the fidelity of the the virtual world is that good. And that's our goal when we're done with this in 2022. All of our sailors arrive at their ships or their aviation squadrons or wherever they're going. They're full up around. They're ready to be part of the team. They don't have to go through three, six, nine months of qualification on their specific ship or airplane. Uh, they're immediately part of the, the production team uh, working. And that's better for the sailors because they're immediately part of the team. It's better for the, the crews because they don't have to carry them while they're relearning on the specific equipment because it looks different than what they trained on. Uh, so very excited about that. That's coming along. And then in the uh, the career readiness pillar, um, lots of uh, moving parts there. But, uh, you know, one aspect of this is just uh, uh, a lot of stuff about life-work balance uh, and, and then getting at, uh, you know, the obstacles that negatively influence a sailor's decision to stay Navy when they're looking to start or raise a family. Um, you know, we uh, lengthened maternity leave to 12 weeks uh, last year. Uh, this year, we'll, we'll uh, make significant changes to paternity leave for fathers and adoption leave uh, for both parents. Uh, we changed our dual military co-location policy to, you know, uh, be more accommodating for folks to make sure they get stationed in the same area within minimal amounts of time. We expanded uh, what we call the Career Intermission Program, which is essentially uh, uh, up to a three-year sabbatical for sailors to take a time out. Uh, it was designed to start a family, but we have sailors using it for other things like educational programs. And then, you know, they they come back in and then they reset with a new peer group so that they're not affected in terms of promotion and career opportunities, and then they just continue on. And uh, that's working well for us uh, as well. Um, we're doing other things in terms of uh, strengthening our uh, resilience programs, things that make sailors tougher over a, over a career, how we cope with stress, suicide prevention, sexual assault, things of that nature, health and fitness programs, uh, diet uh uh, you know, nutritional programs, uh, child development center hours and capacities. Uh, and then, um, even the way we're doing our leader development, um, you know, a lot of emphasis on this idea of character, which kind of gets back to that fitness report and evaluation discussion. 
kind of recognizing the fact that our immersion in developing in character at boot camp and at the Naval Academy or NROTC uh, isn't enough. We need to periodically go back and uh, refresh that just like we do with our technical and tactical skills. And uh, and then another area of emphasis for us is, uh, you know, treating our Navy civilian team members just like we do our, our sailors. They're part of the team as well. So we're refocusing uh, training for our military leaders on, you know, treating our Navy civilian team members the same. And we're also working to improve the Navy civilian team members' career paths, giving them the educational opportunities and the career pro progression, just like our military members do. So lots of stuff going there. Um, there's a lot of stuff on the horizon as well. This year we'll, we'll roll out a completely new pay and personnel system that'll uh, finally bring us into the 21st century. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, our our pay and personnel stuff is uh, is very manual today, but uh, we'll we'll really go to a cloud-based, uh, you know, uh, uh, handheld environment with a, a a call center for most of our services for for pay and personnel. We will go to a uh, what we call a detailing marketplace, which is sort of a LinkedIn for sailors to uh, negotiate job assignments. Uh, we've completed four pilots on that, and then we're going to be shifting our uh, our advancement exams that will also be tailored to the individuals and the qualifications that they have instead of this sort of one-size-fits-all for uh, ratings that we have today. So lots of exciting stuff on the horizon for our sailors. Our guest this week is Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel. One more break, and when we return, we'll get into some of the information technology changes the Navy thinks it needs to make if it's going to successfully pull off some of these initiatives we've been talking about in Sailor 2025. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Servian. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. A few more minutes with Vice Admiral Robert Burke, the Chief of Naval Personnel. He's with us this hour to talk about the transformation of the Navy personnel system that officials are calling Sailor 2025 and talk about where we are with each of those. Admiral, in our last few minutes, um, let's actually stick with that IT modernization piece because we haven't talked a lot about it yet, and I, I think it's really key. Um, I, I know you're getting some help from the new Digital Warfare Office and others in terms of just trying to start integrating all the different silos and warehouses of personnel data that do exist throughout the Navy and correlating it and bringing it together and applying big data science to it to make better personnel decisions. But 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 talk a little bit about some of that ongoing work and what you think it might enable once you get to a better place in terms of better using the information you have about people. Yeah, we're. Uh, I will tell you that today with all these uh, Sailor 2025 initiatives, we're, we're sort of brute forcing our way through them. We're, we're keeping them alive through sheer, sheer willpower and um, the extra hours that, that folks are working to maintain those programs while we have all of our other legacy stuff going on. Um, so we recognize that we really needed to not just transform our IT systems, but everything about, you know, the way we conduct business in, in the Navy's personnel world. So we started working to streamline and optimize 
every line of, of every process within our business. So we, we took a look at just a- absolutely uh, everything we do, you know, every piece of paper we route to the, the process from taking a civilian from the street, turning them into a sailor, all the way to getting them to their first ship, all the way to retirement, uh, getting rid of the unnecessary steps, optimizing the lines of accountability, you know, trying to get those as efficient as possible before we bring some modern uh, information technology to bear uh, uh, on this sort of stuff. You know, as an example, we have uh, 62 personnel support detachments worldwide that that support pay and personnel. And one of the things they do is they liquidate uh, claims for people when they they move. And uh, we were having some trouble with that. We had a pretty high error rate and they were taking too long. So we consolidated the processing all those claims under one roof and took 25 people and said, make this process as good as you, as you can. No new IT systems yet, but just streamline the processing of it. Uh, and today, those 25 people are doing more than half of all the Navy's processing, and they brought the error rate down to zero and the processing time in half. Uh, in a few months, they'll be doing all the Navy's processing with that same error rate and that same time, even before the new IT comes online. So that's the approach we're taking. We're bringing things in, you know, in an intelligent fashion, consolidating them, getting faster, smarter, better, and then we'll bring the IT online. That all makes this, sense because you don't necessarily want to plug a bad process into a new IT system. That's exactly right. We don't want the clunky processes to to go faster. We want to make them smarter and simpler going forward. So uh, this summer, though, we'll bring our first uh, uh, element of uh, what we'll call an integrated pay and personnel uh, IT system online, and we'll we'll do uh, a large scale field test up at uh, Recruit Training Command in Great Lakes, and we'll run about four, four classes, uh, you know, from the time they enter the Navy are recruited all the way through the um, reporting to their first, you know, ship or aircraft squad or whatever their first assignment is. And we'll run that in parallel with our old system to make sure there's no errors. Uh, once we validate that, if if those records are good, they will stay in the new system and that system will officially be the system of record for those people. And then as more and more of those capabilities that system are validated will just begin to to turn off the old parts of the system the and then we'll bring the rest of the navy in as fast as we can mark, uh, migrate the older records and that's that's a little bit more time consuming to to migrate people's records who are already in the navy into this new system that'll be a little bit more time consuming but we estimate by you know middle of 2019 we'll have the the bulk of the Navy into this new system. The 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 nice thing about this new system is we've uh, we've gotten approval to be uh, one of the first uh, Department of Defense entities to put uh, our system in the cloud, which gives us a lot more flexibility than than other government attempts to do things like this. Uh, so we will be able to go to you know a handheld uh, device uh, type of access. It'll give us a lot more capability in terms of uh, being able to do low bandwidth applications to make them a lot more user-friendly, to be able to do with, uh, deal with the shipboard applications, which is very important to us as ships go, you know, in into and out of uh, 
you know, operational conditions where they may or may not be able to communicate. Uh, so, you know, all that's in, in the works, and uh, uh, we think uh, this is just going to get nothing but uh, easier and simpler for our, our sailors to operate. Uh, ultimately, though, you know, besides just the obvious uh, and dramatic improvements in the, the customer support to our sailors and their families, as we're able to start getting reliable and large amounts of, of data, we're going to be able to do a lot better job of predictive analytics. Today, we, as an organization, we spend a lot of time fighting about even what happened in the past, let alone doing uh, meaningful predictive analytics. Uh, so being able to do better predictive analytics is going to let me do things like do a better job of improving sailor fit, getting the right sailor with exactly the right skills in the right job. We'll be able to do a better job at talent matching. We're already doing some uh, exciting stuff in terms of not just matching aptitude, but matching, you know, what a sailor likes, you know, desires and aptitude. There's a balancing point that'll keep a sailor happy and in the Navy longer. Uh, we're getting better at that, and this will help us get even better at that. It'll help us improve retention and target those, you know, retention incentives and doing things like tailored compensation. And then I think the the call centers will be a big piece of this. So, you know, large banking institutions or insurance companies do this really, really well, and that's the model we're looking at. So there's a, you know, whether it's uh, negotiating for your next assignment or changing your paying allowances because you just got married or you had a child, uh, you know, you shouldn't need to walk in to a, a building to do that. You ought to be able to, you know, take a picture of it uh, with your smartphone, just like you, you do with your when you deposit a check today, and upload it and, and be done with it. And if there's anything complicated at all, you call a really capable 24-7 customer service center, and, and it gets done right, right there. And uh, that's what we're aiming for. And we've got some experts that set up some of the world's best uh, service centers uh, helping us uh, work with that. And then ultimately, um, we're going to be able to uh, do this with a, a lot less cost because we're not going to own these uh, systems going forward. We're going to do this in sort of a, a fee-for-service model, which will, uh, will, which will save the tax payers um, literally hundreds of millions of dollars a year when we convert over to this. And then it'll also improve our auditability. We'll be able to account for every single penny of people's pay, uh, of the things that we're spending money on, and make sure that there's no waste, fraud, or abuse uh, over anything. So there's a lot of potential here. Uh, it's real. The technology's out there, and we're on a very uh, solid uh, implementation plan, and our sailors are going to start seeing this uh, late this summer. Vice Admiral Robert Burke is the Chief of Naval Personnel. He joined us by phone from his office to talk about what's happening with Sailor 2025, more than 40 initiatives to reform, or as he says, transform the Navy's personnel system. If you missed any part of our conversation, we'll post an extended version of our interview at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. You can also sign up for our podcast there. That's it for this week's show. Thanks, as always, for listening to On DoD. I'm Jared Servu. So long. You've been listening to On DoD with Federal News Radio DoD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DoD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.